The preaching text comes today from uh, page 4 in your bulletins, if you guys can turn there. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed. And so, you know, who are the they? This is uh, Jesus and the disciples. They're crossing the uh, Sea of Galilee. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not had, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God. In this story, we encounter what the biblical scholars call the strange and alien world of the Bible. This is a world in which an army of demons possess a man. This is a world in which there are exorcisms, in which demons even possess pigs. And it all seems, you know, it's just so remote from our own world Uh, from our modern scientific world, and it seems like this throwback to a primitive time when people were ignorant, right? People didn't know about modern psychiatry. And so they attributed all kinds of problems, you know, like things like mental illness uh, to demons and things that go bump in the night. And, um, And so they saw demons everywhere. You know, demons did this, demons did that. And uh, we look at them and we, we think of them as having this kind of naive worldview, a very simplistic worldview. But uh, let me challenge you. Let me propose to you that our own modern um, secular world is naive and simplistic. Because in our world, everything that we see, right, is all that there is. We don't acknowledge that there is a supernatural realm. And the Bible tells us if you deny even the possibility of personal, supernatural evil, then um, you are ill-equipped to deal with the problems. You don't recognize the depths of 
humanity's predicament. You don't understand the problem of evil. And you have this childlike understanding, you know, this overly simplistic view, because you can't even see the problem. How are you possibly going to solve the problem, right? And so, you, so our world then is a world of just absolute despair, a world without any hope. But the Bible tells us that there are demons. You know, the Bible doesn't say that there are demons everywhere. Um, in fact, if you read through the Gospels um, very carefully, you'll notice that the Bible makes a very clear distinction between um, illnesses and uh, mental problems and things that are purely physical and actual real demon possession. But the Bible tells us that there are demons, and the, re- and the value of this is twofold. Um, number one, it explains the world as we see it. Okay? It explains our world, and number two, it gives us hope. It gives us the possibility of redemption, of salvation. Because in the end, that's what this story is about. It's about salvation. Look at verse 35. It says that uh, the demon-possessed man is sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And that description there isn't just talking about where the man is sitting, but it's about how it's an almost technical description, meaning that this man had become a disciple of Jesus. Okay, That he had been saved. Okay, that salvation had come to this man. So, let's take a look at the story. And here's my outline. We're going to look at it in four parts. Number one, we're going to look at the reality of demons. Number two, we're going to look at the power of demons. Number three, we're going to look at the uh, persistence of demons. And then number four, we're going to look at, finally, the defeat of the demons. Okay? So, the reality, the power, the persistence, and then the defeat. All right, so number one, the reality of demons. So Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and they arrive on land and immediately they're confronted by this demon-possessed man, a man full of demons. Now, what are demons? Um, This by itself can be an enormous subject, but let me just say it very simply. Uh, In the beginning, God created all things good, including angels. But some of the angels rebelled against God and they became evil. And these fallen angels are demons, right? And who is Satan, some of you are wondering? Well, Satan is one of those fallen demons. He is the uh, fallen angels. He is the leader of the demons. And uh, he and his demon horde, his demon army, are at war against God. They're the enemies of God. In fact, that's what Satan means in the Hebrew. It means adversary. And uh, what I'm about to say is very, very important for you to hear, okay? It's It's also a great comfort Satan and his demons are not the equal of God. They are under the absolute control and authority of God. For example, in the book of Job, in order for Satan to lift one finger against Job, he has to go before God's presence and he has to ask permission, right? And we see this in the story as well. If you look in verse 28, uh, the demons, when they see Jesus, they bow down immediately before him because they recognize his absolute authority. And in order to go into the pigs, they have to ask for Jesus' permission. And so the demons and Satan, they're absolutely under God's control. But at the same time, and this is really going to cook your noodle, the Bible tells us that Satan is the Lord of this world. That the demons are in control over this world. Uh, Jesus, for example, in John chapter 12, calls Satan the ruler of the world. And Paul, in Ephesians 2, calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And so Satan is the prince of this of the, of the earth. And some of you are saying, how can that be? How can it be that the demons are under God's control, and yet they are in control over the world? And the answer is sin, is human rebellion. 
You see, when we sin, we acknowledge and we give the lordship to Satan. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, remember in the story, Adam and Eve, uh, when they partook of the forbidden fruit, who, and when they were rebelling against God, who else was there? Right? Remember, there was someone else there. It was the serpent. And it was Satan. And was Satan there merely enticing Adam and Eve? Were they merely tempting Adam and Eve? No, they were, Satan was doing something else. Satan was enlisting Adam and Eve into his army. Right? He was asking uh, Adam and Eve to join forces with them, right? And some of you are saying, but, but, you know, I don't understand. I don't think I'm joining forces with Satan, right? Um, until this sermon, I didn't even think about Satan. What do you mean I'm joining forces? Right? I'm just marching to the beat of my own drum. Well, the answer is that the demons and Satan, they don't need you to acknowledge them in order for you to join forces with them. There's this incredibly interesting passage in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Paul is writing to the church, and uh, he's talking about uh, this problem of uh, people offering food to idols. right? And he says, uh, don't you realize that when you offer the food to the idols, you're really offering the food to demons? He says, don't you realize that you're participating with the demons? And so what Paul is telling us is that behind every idol, right, if you make something at the center of your life other than God, if it, you know, whatever it is, your career, um, relationships, um, your image, beauty, if you make something other than God your identity, your center, your ultimate, then you are participating with demons. You're joining in with the demons. You're joining forces and you're giving lordship to Satan. There's another um, aspect to this uh, alliance with demons, which is that when you participate with the demons through your sins, the demons have you. The demons uh, make you their captive, their prisoner. You become a slave. And we see that, I think, the best example is um, the Chronicles of Narnia. You know C.S. Lewis's book? Um, actually, his whole series. Uh, in his first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, it's this great story. As you, some of you know, it's about four children. And one of, the, uh, one of the boys, Edmund, enters into Narnia. And the first creature that he meets is the White Witch. Right? And she's the evil lord over Narnia. And uh, the White Witch gives Edmund the most delicious, the most delectable, uh, you know, this dessert chocolatey food that he has ever eaten called Turkish Delights. And he's just eating, he's scarfing it down, and before he knows it, it's all gone. And he says to the white witch, may I have some more? And the white witch says, no, but, but, if you come back to me, and if you bring your siblings, and if you join forces with me, I will give you all the Turkish Delights you can possibly want, and I will make you a prince in the land of Narnia. And so Edmund, filled with these uh, visions of grandeur, uh, still tasting the Turkish delights in his mouth, he agrees, and he tries to convince and even trick his brothers and sisters to join him, but they won't come. So he decides to break off on his own, and he goes to the White Witch, and he says, here I am, I'm joining forces with you, you know, let me help you defeat Aslan. Aslan is, you know, the, the great lion king of, of, of Narnia, 
And to his absolute and utter surprise, the white witch turns on him and she captures him and she turns him into a prisoner. And rather than eating Turkish delights, he eats stale bread and water and he becomes her prisoner. And so it is with demons. And this is the deep, deep theology of demons, right? Because on the one hand, you participate, you join forces with the demons, but then on the other hand, the demons have you. The demons make us their prisoners. And this, I think, is so helpful to explaining the world that we live in. And I think this is why the biblical understanding of reality is so vastly superior to the modern secular understanding because it helps us to understand the problem of evil, right? What is evil? The Bible tells us that evil is not only something that we do, but that evil is also a power over us, right? And that power over us is demonic power, Right? That evil is both our fault and at the same time we are helpless before evil. Think about your own lives, your own experience, right? You do what you know to be wrong. You do what you know God is not pleased with. Right? So you're participating. You're the one doing it. It's your responsibility. But at the same time, you cannot stop. You are an absolute prisoner. Right? There's a power over you, controlling you, enslaving you. And unless you believe this, the world makes no sense at all. Uh, I think this explains so much, you know, life both on the global kind of, um, on a corporate level and on an individual personal level. So first on the global corporate level, think about the case of North Korea. North Korea has, has come up in the news a lot lately. Um, it's basically controlled by this tyrant, Kim Jong-il. And then before him was his father, Kim Il-sung. And these two men, for 60 years, has ruled North Korea. And the whole world kind of looks on in hard. They don't know I mean, what can be done. Absolutely nothing. I mean, these two men are just so brutal. It's like little Hitlers controlling for 60 years, right? The people go hungry. In the wintertime, children eat bark off the trees because they're starving. They have these vast prison camps, millions of people, millions in a country of 20 million. And the whole world throws up its hands. What can be done? And see, this explanation is so helpful because you see, not only is evil something that we do, we're responsible, but also we are captives. We cannot break free. We're helpless because evil is a power over us. What about on the personal individual level? What about addictions? Um, addictions are so prevalent, right? And here's the thing about addictions. It's, it's this interplay between your responsibility. No one forced you to become addicted, right? Um, you chose, you, you, you went down that path, but then at the same time, you're, 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 you're a victim. You're, you're a slave. You're a captive. You cannot stop. You can't change. You can't break free. Evil is both what we do and it's a power over us. And if you deny this reality of demons, then you live in a world of just total despair and without any hope. Um, there's this quote from a movie called The Usual Suspects, which I think is a great, uh, there's this great quote. Um, some of you have seen the movie. Uh, there's this character Kevin Spacey plays called Verbal Kent, and he's being interviewed by this police detective, and he's talking about this criminal mastermind, Kaiser Soze. And he has this great line in the movie. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled 
was to convince the world he doesn't exist. And I think that's a great summation of this first point, the reality of demons. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is to convince the world he doesn't exist because if you don't even know he exists, he has you all the more. Then he's got you. He's enslaved you all the more. All right, so that's the first point, the reality of demons. And then the second point is the power of demons. And we're going to take a look at the story. And we see uh, four aspects of the power of demons. We see, number one, the demonic control happens gradually. Number two, it isolates you from community. Number three, it dehumanizes you. And then number four, it torments you. All right, so let's take a look at that. Number one, look at verse 27. It says, uh, there met Jesus a man from the city. What does that tell us? A man from the city. It tells us that this man was not always demon-possessed. That once he used to live in the city, he used to live a normal life. And that tells us that uh, participation with the demons happens gradually over time, step by step. You get immersed deeper and deeper until it's too late. All right, number two. It isolates you. Um, look at verse 20, 29. It says that the demons drove him, drove the man into the desert. What is the desert? In the ancient world, the desert was this absolute uh, empty place. No humanity, no people. It was a place of isolation. And so what the demonic powers did in this man's life is it completely cut him off from his friends and his families. It completely isolated him from other people. And then number three, it dehumanizes. Um, just all throughout the passage, it says that this man lived naked. He lived among the tombs. And in the townspeople tried to bind him with shackles, with chains, right? And all these things um, made him not more than who he is, but less than who he is, right? It dehumanized him. It stripped him of his, of his dignity. That's what clothes represented in the ancient world. It represented your dignity. And for him to have no clothes, it just absolutely dehumanized him. It, it turned him into like an animal, right? That he had to be chained. And then finally, number four, the demons torment him. And we see this throughout the passage, but um, there's this parallel passage in Mark, which I think um, articulates this really well, and I want to read it for you. It's basically the same story in Mark's gospel. Mark says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, the man was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And this is a picture of someone in absolute agony. He's living, it's a living hell, right? He's bruising himself, he's, he's bleeding, and he's crying out in absolute torment. Now, what does this have to do with us? You see, some of you are saying, oh, well, I'm nowhere close to that, so no problem, right? But don't you see that this man is the most extreme example of being in participation with demons, right? And insofar as we sin, insofar as we uh, worship idols, we are on the same path. We're on the same trajectory. We're going to the same destination. Um, I used to have a friend in college, and uh, she, uh, she, uh, this was her fourth year in college, and uh, she really got into this game called World of Warcraft. Some of you guys know the game, right? Um, it's kind of like this online game where you play this character, and you sort of build up strengths and abilities, and you climb up levels, and you sort of join with other online players, and you go on quests. 
And at first she said, uh, she started to play this game, and uh, it was really a fun diversion. Um, it was really entertaining. Um, and it was just a good distraction from her studies. But what happened was her, for- her fourth year, her last semester, she started to feel an unusual amount of stress in school. She was taking some classes that were um, a little bit more difficult than she was used to. She started to stress. And on top of that, you know, this was her last semester. She started to worry about what she's going to do after college. And so she started to play the game a little bit more. And she found that the more she played, you know, it gave her this solace. It gave her comfort. You know, she felt so proud of her character as it climbed up the ranks. But there was this perverse relationship so that every time, the more and more she spent in World of Warcraft, the more and more her real life, her school life, deteriorated and became worse and worse, right? And, and every time she lived in the real world and it just sucked and everything was going wrong, she would turn to the video game world and things were good. And, you know, she had this identity of this mighty character. And so she became more and more immersed until finally it became this full-blown addiction. And she basically played the video game from morning till night. And she skipped all of her classes. She stopped doing homework. Um, and not only that, it completely cut her off from all her friends and family, you know, because she was ashamed, you know. She had completely cut herself off from the world, so she didn't answer any phone calls. She completely cut herself off from her family. And uh, she started to not even take care of herself. She said that she was so intensely into the game that she wouldn't even eat, right? So she lost, she told me she lost 15 pounds that last month of playing. And she said... The irony of it all is that in the end, she wasn't even having fun. It was just pure agony and torture. And the only reason she kept playing is because the real world was even worse. It was in shambles. It was all falling apart. And so she had to keep playing. And, you know, she got to this point where she had to maintain her status, maintain her levels and skills. And it got to the point where finally her family found out about it. And this was right before finals, right before she was about to fail all her exams. And they came and they helped her to withdraw from, uh, from all her classes for that semester. And basically the whole semester was a waste. It was a total wash. And here's the thing. For my friend, um, this kind of descent into demonic power happened so quickly. It accelerated within just a month or two, right? But all of us, insofar as we seek our identity, we seek our comfort, we seek um, meaning in something other than God. Whatever it is, you know, whatever that thing is, we are on the same trajectory. We're going in the same direction, right? And you could even see it in your lives, how it cuts you off from your family and friends, how it torments you, it stops becoming pleasurable, and how it absolutely dehumanizes you. And let me, let me close by noting one last detail. Look at verse 29. It says that the townspeople try to contain this demon-possessed man by shackling him, binding him with chains. But what happened? He would always break free. And what does that tell us? What's the meaning? It tells us that all of our efforts, no matter how hard we try, it won't work. We can't fix the problem. The demons break free, and we are a captive. We're hopeless, okay? All right, so that's point number two, the power of demons. Number three is um, the persistence of demons. Um, 
And this is a difficult point to um, express, but it's important because it's there in the text. The natural question, of course, comes up, which is some of you are asking, are demons still around, right? Are they still a threat? And my answer is yes and no, okay? Yes and no. In order to appreciate the answer, um, let's look at the story. In verse 31, the demons make a most unusual request of Jesus, right? It says, they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss. What is that talking about? What is the abyss? Um, Well, this by itself can be an enormous topic, but let me just say it very simply. The demons knew that at the end of history, at the end of time, God would cast all the demons in the world into that abyss. And I love that word. It's such a descriptive word, right? Into the outer darkness, into the fiery pit. And so the demons are basically asking Jesus, is it the time, right? Um, Are you going to cast us into the abyss? And Jesus says, no. How do we know that? Because he doesn't, right? And so the demons say, if you're not going to cast us into the abyss, may we continue our destruction. May we go into the pigs and may we destroy them. And Jesus says yes. He gives them permission. And what does that mean? It means this, that Satan has been defeated. That humanity is free. But nevertheless, Satan has limited freedom. He's still going around uh, doing their destru- the demons are doing their destructive work. And as some of you are wondering, you know, why doesn't Jesus cast them into the abyss? Why doesn't he destroy them? And here's the answer. Because if Jesus were to destroy the demons, he would also destroy humanity. You see, humanity and the demons are so intertwined, they're so interconnected, that he cannot destroy evil without also destroying sinners, without also destroying us. And so Jesus allows the demons to persevere in order to give us time. And that's why, that's the purpose of the church. The mission of the church is to go to the ends of the earth and to proclaim the victory of Jesus, to, de- to proclaim the defeat of the demons, so that people can hear and be, and be released and be saved. And this explains, uh, and so what is the point of the third point? The point is that the fact that the demons are not yet into the abyss explains why the world is still so messed up today. The world is still so messed up, even though Jesus has come, because the demons and Satan are defeated, but yet they remain, and yet they continue their destruction. All right, so that's point number three. Um, the persistence of the demons, that they're not yet into the abyss. Point number four, finally, the defeat of the demons, right? And here we can uh, call this point the ultimate battle. You see, this story is a battle scene, right? It doesn't seem like that, but it's a battle scene. And we see that uh, when Jesus asks the man's name. Jesus says, what is your name? And the man says, my name is Legion. Right? And what is a legion? A legion is a Roman military unit. And basically the demons had assembled into this army to fight. They're ready to fight. And in fact, this whole passage has all these bristles with these military terms. Um, if you look, for example, in verse 27, it says, When the man met Jesus, that word met in Greek means to face off in battle. And then in verse 33, where it says, The herd of pigs rushed down into the lake. 
The word rushed there in the Greek also means to march in military formation. And so what this passage is telling us is that the ultimate reality is spiritual war, is this cosmic war between God and the demons. And we see that. That's why um, in the Old Testament, there's all these stories about battles. And that's why the Old Testament is filled with wars. Right now in small group, we're going through the book of Judges. And uh, it's basically one battle after another. What does it all mean? It means this, that it's a picture of the ultimate reality, which is war. Do you know that there is a great war going on between God and the demons? This is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, and I'll read it for you. Put on, Paul says, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, all of the Bible tells us, and in fact, don't all the great stories also tell us this, that there is a great cosmic battle, right? The Lord of the Rings, right? There's this great battle. What about the Chronicles of Narnia? There's this great battle, and all of that is telling us that there's a war between God and Satan. And then here's the question. Okay, here's where it all comes home. Where do we fit in that battle? Where are we in that story, in that war? Well, look at the story. We are like the demon-possessed man. We are a captive of the demons. We are the prisoners. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia. We're, we're like Edmund, a prisoner of the white witch. And so how does Jesus rescue us then? How does Jesus defeat the demons without wiping us out? Well, I think um, the Chronicles of Narnia, I think, uh, really uh, it illustrates this so well. If you guys know the story... In the first book, what happens is the white witch goes to Aslan. Aslan is this Christ figure. He is, the, you know, this great mighty lion king. And the white witch says to Aslan, the deep magic of Narnia that is written on the stone table says that the life and the blood of any traitor is mine. And so therefore, Edmund's life is forfeit. I have a right to kill and destroy him. And Aslan says... You're absolutely right. But then he says, can I talk with you? And so in the story, he, 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 he has this kind of conference with the white witch. And after this conference, the white witch proclaims to everyone, I have relinquished control over Edmund. He is free to go. And everyone's wondering, how can that be? And what happens is at nighttime, the night falls, and then Aslan slips away. And only Susan and Lucy follow him. And Aslan goes to the camp of the white witch. And there he's greeted by all, you know, her demonic forces, all the evil creatures. And they're, you know, rejoicing. And they shackle him. They bind him. They torment and torture him. They shave off his mane. And they put him on the great stone tablet. And then finally the white witch lifts up a knife. And Susan and Lucy are watching. And they kill Aslan the lion. And he's dead, right? And then Susan and Lucy are there and they're crying. And this kind of, you know, mirrors the gospel stories, right? Because only the women were there at the tomb. Only the women were there at the cross. And they're crying and they're thinking about how, how, can, how can this battle be won? You know, now that Aslan is dead. But then all of a sudden, they hear the stone table crack. And then they see Aslan, as mighty and as majestic as ever before. 
And, they, and then they say, are you a ghost? How can this be? How can you be alive again? And Aslan says, there's a deeper magic that the white witch did not know, which is this, that when a willing and innocent victim stands in the place of the traitor and dies in his place, then the stone table will crack and death itself will be reversed. And then Aslan takes uh, Lucy and Susan, he bounds into the battle and he defeats the white witch. And that is the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is our great warrior. This is why um, in the call to worship, we read the story of Jesus Christ, that great passage in in, um, Revelation 19. He is this mighty warrior on a white steed with a sword coming out of his mouth. And how does he defeat Satan? He does it by exchanging places with the demon-possessed man, right? Because at the end of the story, what do we see? The demon-possessed man, he's fully clothed. He's in his right mind. He's uh, sitting there at the feet of Jesus. You know, he's become a disciple. And he's restored to his family and his friends. But in order for that to happen, Jesus had to take his place, right? Where do we see that in the story? Well, we see it at the end of the Gospel of Luke. At the end, we see that Jesus becomes a prisoner. Jesus is bound, And then Jesus is put on the cross and he is tormented and he cries out. Jesus is bleeding and he is cut off from all his family and all his friends and ultimately from his father. And then Jesus is driven into the tombs. And see, this is how Jesus defeats the demonic army. Not as the Jewish people longed for and expected, which is they thought the enemy was the Roman army. They thought, Jesus, why don't you lead this army with a sword and slash them and kill them, get rid of those sinners? But Jesus says, don't you realize the ultimate enemy is not the Romans, but it's your heart. It's your sins. It's the demonic power over you. And the only way he could rescue us is by dying for us on the cross. And when you see Jesus dying on the cross, and when you believe in that truth, you will be free. Right? You will be released. So that you don't have to seek your identity and meaning in other things, but you seek it in Jesus Christ, the only one who will love you and die for you. And how does the story end? Um, This man is restored, a picture of salvation, and then Jesus gives him a mission. And what is the mission? He says, go and proclaim to everyone what God has done for you. And that's the mission Jesus gives us today. If you have been released from the demonic powers, from the power of sin over you, then Jesus gives you a mission to go and tell your friends, to tell your coworkers that it should be this incredible joy that bubbles up out of you and that you have this desire to tell and to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we do confess to you that because of our sins, we were a captive, we were a slaves. But, oh Lord, we pray that we would know and we would realize the great victory you have by dying in our place, by taking the punishment we deserve. And we pray that that would ravish our hearts. We pray that that would would give us comfort, that would give us solace, and that would give us a new identity in you. And we pray that you would equip us to be your evangelists, to be your ambassadors in this world. We We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.